This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, if you would, uh, would you turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5? We'll continue our way through the chapter of Matthew. And today we'll start in verse 20 and we'll read down to 48. So Matthew 5 verse 20. And would you stand? For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whoever, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, for whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax, collector, tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do, you, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, again, as always, we look to you for understanding, for wisdom and application. Lord, uh, may you show us um, true meaning of these things, uh, give us wisdom that we not cloud the issues here with our own preferences, with our own 
presuppositions. Lord, may we hear Your words and Your intentions. And again, may You work these things out in our lives. We're discussing things here that we know we cannot do in and of ourselves. We pray, Lord, for power in living the Christian life, doing all that we do, ultimately for Your honor and glory, and for the good of our fellow man. By Your grace, by Your empowerment, we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I want to point out a few things here. Um, to, to help us uh, with the context and, and uh, to show you why I asked uh, Zachary to read this whole passage. We're, we're going to try to deal with the whole passage, so it's going to be um, uh, concise you know, with each, uh, each topic here because we're going to try to move through the whole passage. Uh, I think that is important, again, so that we get it all in context. So let me just point out a couple of things here. We, again, are, are uh, coming off of the Beatitudes um, in just the last week or two. Uh, so I want to, again, keep them in mind because all of this is tied together. Uh, the Beatitudes provide for us a description of qualities or attributes that characterize the genuine Christian. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but I, but I think that's what the Lord is putting across here. He's, he's describing for us uh, the kingdom heirs. These are qualities, attributes, attitudes, dispositions that characterize the heirs of the kingdom of God. So, again, keep those things in mind because I think what, what we're seeing now in this passage is just uh, the Lord expounding on that. So, you could say it is the uh, it's the beatitudes in action. That's that's where he's going now. He's already told us that the kingdom heirs are are poor in spirit, meek, mournful, hunger and thirst for righteousness, peacemakers, and so on. So now what he's doing is is fleshing that out. This these again the beatitudes in action, putting feet to it here. It's where the rubber meets the road. In Christianity, Christianity, as I think, think I said last week, is, is not just uh, uh, merely a belief system. Of course, it's a belief system. We have a, a body of truth that by God's grace we recognize as being truth. And uh, we don't mean that in a relative way. We don't, we don't say, well, okay, it's, it's good for me and therefore I accept it as truth. No, we mean it's absolute truth. So we have a body of truth given to us by God Himself that we accept as being true, but it doesn't stop there. It's not, not just uh, merely mental assent. It's not just an intellectual um, uh, experience. It, it affects every aspect of our life. So Christianity works out in the life of the believer. And that's what the Lord's doing here. He's describing how this looks, how, how the kingdom heir lives and thinks. Acts, responds in given situations. So, again, I would paraphrase it this way. What, what we have here is how the genuine Christian looks. So, the Beatitudes give us a description of these uh, uh, qualities or attributes that characterize the genuine Christian. Now we're seeing it fleshed out. So, you can think of it also in, in terms of uh, being salt and light. You know, the Lord said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world, um, he declares to his followers. Now, again, we're, we're seeing how that works out in, uh, in situations. Now, I want to point out another thing here. Uh, there are a couple of uh, bookends, you might say, I, I, would, I would put on this section. Verse 20, and that's, again, the reason we stopped and started here. Verse 20 and verse 48. Keep this in mind, too, as we're, as we're looking at this. Verse 20, for I say to you, now that's, that's, that's a, an address 
to us. It's an address to those standing there or sitting there listening to the Lord, but by implication to us as well. This, this is a sermon to a group of people that have gathered to hear Jesus speak, to hear His teaching. So it's not limited to the twelve or, or something like that. He's talking to the audience there, thousands of people, and by implication, He's talking to you and I. So when He says, for I say to you, you can, you can take that personal. Okay? He, Jesus is talking to me. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I hope I can, I can uh, uh, do that justice. I mean, to, to me, well, I probably can't do that, but come close or something. But to me, that, that's, that's an incredible statement. Um, and the reason I say that is because through, through most of the go- much of the Gospels, as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what, what do you see when Jesus is confronted with the scribes and the Pharisees? It, it's usually words of condemnation, right? And, and of course, that's, that's in the background here. That's why he's saying what he's saying. Nevertheless... He's saying there, he's not saying you shouldn't, you and I shouldn't have some kind of righteousness or righteous appearance, whatever. Um, but he, he's saying it, it, it's got to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, theirs was faulty. And in some places he, he directly points that out. I'll try to allude to a couple of those as we go through it. Here he does it by implication. In other words, he, he, he gives us the right way to think and act. And by implication, he's saying this exceeds what the scribes and Pharisees do. They don't measure up. Their righteousness does not measure up. Now, you've got also, too, to, to try to understand how uh, shocking, maybe the right word there, how shocking this would be for his listeners because they see these guys as righteous men. Probably most of them do. Certainly the scribes and the Pharisees see themselves that way. The, the word Pharisee means separated. So, so these, are, these are men who have separated themselves from the rest of uh, society to dedicate themselves to God's work, to God's Word. In uh, one place, Jesus uh, alluding to the Scripture says, you know that the Scripture cannot be broken, which, by the way, is, a, is a, I would say, an explicit statement concerning the uh, inerrancy of Scripture and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Jesus affirms that. But nobody there, the Pharisees, don't deny that. They are what we would call today inerrantists. They're not liberal theologians, okay? Um, today... Uh, we, we, we often talk about the, the uh, battle, the contrast and the battle between conservatives and, and liberals, not only in politics, but in theology too. They're not liberals. They're conservatives, ultra-conservatives. And Jesus stands and looks them in the face and says, You err, because you neither know the Scripture nor the power of God. That's a shocking statement to say to the conservative believers of his day. Same, same way here. He, he says to these people, and no doubt there are scribes and Pharisees among them, and he, and he says to them, your righteousness, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you are a kingdom heir, your righteousness must exceed that of the most righteous people in your community. Or at least you could say what are perceived to be the most righteous people in your community. It's got to exceed that. So that's, that's the, the book in on the front side. Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If it does not, in other words, you cannot be a member of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, that's the bookend on the front end. What about on the back side? Verse 48. Therefore, you, again, speaking to all those who are hearing Him that day, and by implication, speaking to you and I, every believer, every true believer, or you could even say just, just everyone who professes to be a follower of Christ, He's laying down the standard. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And now, verse 48, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a high standard. It's the ultimate. <laughs> it's, the, it's the highest standard. The glorious standard. Your righteousness must exceed the scribes and fair. Like I said, that in itself would be a shocking statement to a lot of the people there. They would say, wow. We're talking about some kind of righteousness if it goes beyond above and beyond theirs. And, and then if, if that weren't shocking enough or, or, if, or if people sat by and said, well, you know what? And I think this is what we, we're prone to do today often. We say, well, let's, wait a minute. Let's, let's consider the fact that they are hypocrites, which indeed they were. And Jesus calls them that. And so we, we can lower the bar, right? Because after all, He said, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's really not saying much because they're a bunch of hypocrites anyway. So verse 48 just takes it to the ultimate level. You must be perfect. Now, I know I've said this many times, but it's the same way in, in loving one another, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. In one place, Jesus says, you love your neighbor. In fact, this is Old Testament command. But you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a high standard. It really is a high standard because you typically, most people aren't out to hurt themselves or to wrong themselves. Um, he, he just takes it for granted that we love ourselves. And I don't think he's commanding us really to love ourselves. Not, he, he's not adopting uh, uh, 20th century psychology there. You know, you, you've, got, you've got to love yourself. You've got to forgive. You've got to like yourself and be friends with yourself and all those kinds of things. No, he's, he's assuming we do that pretty well. <laughs> which which we do. And so he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. A high standard. But, then over in John he says, love one another as I have loved you. So if you could somehow get out of that first one, you know, well, I don't love myself very much anyway, therefore I don't, I don't have to love everybody else very much. If you could get out of that one some way, you're not going to get out of the next one. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the ultimate. That's the highest standard. And that's what we're required to do. So there are the two bookends. On the front side, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And on the back side, and, and if he doesn't, if it doesn't, he says you can by no means, no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And on the back side, it's, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, everything we're going to look at this morning, verses 21 through 47, sandwiched in between those two statements. This is what he's expounding on. The Beatitudes in action. Genuine righteousness, kingdom righteousness, righteousness that, that measures up, if you will, righteousness that is worthy of, uh, of being associated with the king and his kingdom. Verse 21, Jesus begins to <clears throat> expound these things. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you 
that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire, or the fire of hell. Now, i point out a couple things here too. First of all, I want you to notice the authority um, with which Jesus speaks. This again is astounding. If, 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 if the people weren't taken back enough already because of his statements about the Pharisees. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now he, he quotes Scripture, commands straight from God. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. And then the rest of this would, would be uh, more of traditional teaching. In other words, this is what they did with it. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And by the way, murder in the Old Testament carried the death penalty, and I'm not... It, it, it seems like a case here of where they lowered the bar, you know, um, because you shall not murder, and if you, if you murder, you, you die. But here, um, Jesus is quoting uh, their interpretation of it. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And, and again, uh, remember the other night when we were talking about uh, Jesus, uh, last week, we were talking about Jesus fulfilling the law, He didn't come to destroy us. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. What, what He's doing here is not uh, refuting the law. He's refuting their interpretation of the law. And in some cases, He, he takes the law, the, the pure command, and just expounds on it and gives His interpretation, which of course is uh, the true one, the, the right one, but giving the fullness of it because they don't apply it rightly. They don't fully understand it. So he's, he's giving the antithesis of, of their thinking, refuting their thinking and setting it right, and at the same time expounding, giving the, uh, the intent of the law. Because here's, here's what they tend to do, what we tend to do also. The command is, you shall not murder. And most of us haven't murdered anybody. I mean, physically, just taken their life, snuffed them out. And so we, we can take a command like that. Here's the standard. God says, you shall not murder. And we say, Phew, I haven't done that. And we stand like the Pharisee in the synagogue with the sinner and say, oh, th- I thank You, Lord, that I'm not like that guy over there. I haven't murdered anybody. And I haven't committed adultery. And I thank You, God, that I'm not like that. That's, that's the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees exhibited. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom heir, the believer, the righteousness of the believer must exceed that. And he's showing us how, how that's to be done. So, he's, he's, he's giving antithesis to their wrong interpretations, refuting their wrong interpretations, expounding on the Word, giving the, uh, the genuine and the full meaning of it, and he's setting himself up as the authority to do this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. That's, that's amazing if you, if you were, Standing there, there there would have been rabbis, just like preachers in our day, there would have been rabbis who would have said things like, you have heard it said, and here's what I think the Lord meant there. And which, that's legitimate to do that. But Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what I'm suggesting is this, he's, he's putting his teaching on the same level as the Scripture. And over and above the level of the Pharisees. I mean, he's blatantly saying their interpretation of these things is wrong. Their application of these things is wrong. And here's the right way. <laughs> he's, he's setting himself up as the authority. And, and just, just to make another, illustrate that a little more. Think, think about the Old Testament prophets who would have come and said, Thus saith the Lord. Right? They, they're, they're speaking legitimately. You take somebody like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, whoever you want to name, Daniel, David, 
They're speaking legitimately as God's representative. And they say, Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And Jesus says, This is what I say. I say to you that this is not was not common, okay? And that's why some of them were astounded at times and they would say, we never heard anybody speak like this before. This man speaks with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees do, or the scribes and the lawyers. So, but I say to you, verse 22, now he's giving the correct application of the law the command, you shall not murder, and expounding on the true intent of it. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, he's already said if you commit murder, here, here's, the, here's the command with the application, the common application. You murder, you're in danger of the judgment. He could be meaning there the final judgment. Uh, he may be meaning the, uh, the judgment of the Sanhedrin. You know, they had bodies of... Uh, like courts, the, the uh, rulers, Sanhedrin, uh, local and national, uh, that, that they would take cases before. So he may be talking about that. But e- either way, here's, here's their application. You murder, you're in danger of judgment. And Jesus says, uh, but I'm telling you this. Not just, not just murder, not just physically killing somebody, but if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, sounds funny, but the, the word literally there means empty head. You know, you, you, you say that you insult somebody, calling them an empty head. <laughs> not, not nice, is it? Not pleasant. Jesus says, whoever does that is in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin. You're in danger of being brought before the council and being disciplined. And again, if those weren't, uh, you know, unsettling enough, he goes on to say, but whoever says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Just, just, for, just for calling somebody a name, just for insulting somebody. You know what? I, I was looking at this the other day, I'm uh, thinking, we have such... I'm saying we. I'm not just talking about the scribes and the Pharisees here. I'm including myself, and I think most of us today, even Christians. We have such a watered-down view of sin. Of sin. And such a, a diluted view of the value and dignity of human beings in general. Now... That's a little understandable coming from an evolutionist, a Darwinian. It's, it's still wrong and ridiculous, but, but it's a little bit understandable. I mean, if you, if you really believe that we're here by accident, we have, we have no real purpose in being here, and if you really believe that uh, we evolved from apes, or you go further back from some cosmic soup, um, then what, what essentially is the difference between us and a germ or a cockroach? Nothing. Nothing. And that's why people today, ironically, uh, not only tend to put people on the human beings on the same level as animals, uh, oftentimes they raise the animals up to a higher level. Uh, Unreal. It's because, of, it's because of a wrong view of human beings. And Jesus takes it very serious. So, the command, you shall not murder, certainly means that you don't take someone's life. But it has uh, further reaching implications than that. You, you, don't, you don't insult somebody's dignity. You don't destroy their reputation. You don't call them something insulting like an empty head or... Uh, something as, and, and it is a severe term, a, a, a fool. The word is moray, and we joke about it a lot in our culture. So it's the word from which we get our word moron. So Jesus is saying you don't call somebody a moron. Because the idea behind the word is that they are just godless, 
impious, you know, worthless, sorry. Jesus is saying, you do that, you, you call your brother empty head or just sorry, worthless, no good, fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled. Now, notice that. What he's calling for here is, is a right relationship, brotherly love, which we're going to see in a moment. Love, or you could say it this way, because uh, and some, sometimes uh, I think he is referring specifically among believers, um, but sometimes it's just humanity in, in general. So, love for fellow man, we could say it that way. And so, if someone has something against you, you reconcile. Now, the, the picture he paints of that is in the middle of re- religious service. You, you bring your sacrifice. So, so, we could kind of bring it into our day. Before you go to church and pretend like you're in right relationship with God, Jesus is saying, you better go be reconciled to your brother. And he doesn't even use an example of you wronging them. He uses an example of them wronging you. If you bring your gift to the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, Get it fixed, he's saying. Get it fixed. Be in right relationship with your fellow man. Be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, agree with your adversary. Now he's moved from brother to adversary. But he's still, all of this is still expounding on the command, you shall not murder. In other words, you don't, you don't hate somebody. You don't destroy their reputation. You don't uh, insult them. You don't, as, as much as is possible, you don't remain in a, in a relationship of enmity with them. You reconcile. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. So similarly there, in the first case, uh, brotherly scenario, he's saying you're in danger of judgment being brought before the council, or even in danger of uh, the fire of hell. Here he says you're in danger of being thrown in prison. You need to agree with them quickly. Reconcile. Set things right between you and your fellow man. Don't allow there to be any uh, strife there, any contention there, as much as is possible uh, from your standpoint. It's what Paul said of himself, right? And, and or commanded the church. As much as life in you, be at peace with all men. So, insofar as it's your responsibility, set things right. Reconcile. Verse 26, Assuredly, this is, of course, the consequence in the uh, scenario he's laid out there. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there, prison that is, till you have paid the last penny. If you don't, reconcile. Now, he moves on to another one. Adultery. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And again, we could justify ourselves. Many people have never engaged in the act of adultery, and so they could they could say, "Well, you know what? I've, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I'm I'm in good shape so far." That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They limited these things to the physical acts, and in doing that, justified themselves. Jesus says, but I say to you, now here comes his interpretation of the command, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart. And by the way, again, keep in mind, I said these are the Beatitudes in action. So, so these things correlate. You don't, you don't insult, demean your brother if you're meek, if you're poor in spirit, if you're a peacemaker, right? And you don't commit adultery, not even in your heart, if your heart is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is how it plays out. Not only do you not do the act, you don't 
think the thoughts. This, this interpretation of Jesus rules out sexual fantasy. That again, some people would justify themselves in. They would say, well, you know, I don't, I don't commit the act. I just, I just think about it. I just play it out in my mind. And certainly that's not as bad as committing the act. And Jesus is saying, uh, again, you're in danger of judgment. You're guilty, He's saying. You've committed adultery with her, not the physical act, but, but if you lust for her, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. All of these things, again, are heart matters. Why is that? Well, he, he says, and we'll see it later, Lord willing, we get over to chapter 15. The heart is where these things start. Out of the heart proceed murders and adulteries and thefts and so on. That's, that's where these things originate in the heart of man. The actions, you know, physical killing, murder, the physical act of murder, the physical act of adultery, those things don't happen in a vacuum. They proceed from the heart. And so Jesus says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, and again, He's expounding on the command to not commit adultery. He's talking about adultery. If your right eye causes you to sin, plug it out and cast it from you. Notice how radically He's saying this kind of sin should be dealt with. Why? Because the danger is eternity in hell. Eternal damnation. So, and I think here he's speaking hyperbole. In other words, he's giving extreme, you know, pluck your eye out. And I don't think he means literally pluck your eye out. I say that because you can still lust for a woman in your heart even if your eye is plucked out or if your hand is cut off. But he's just using hyperbole to show how radically sin should be dealt with. Get it out of your life is what he's saying. That's a kind of a, a, a funny old statement, but it's always I, I like it. It's a, uh, I, I think uh, a great way of saying the truth on these things, like like um, you know thinking about killing somebody or or thinking about committing adultery. There's an old saying that you you cannot prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. Okay, I say that because I know one thought that comes to mind immediately when you read through these things, people say, well, you know, I have these thoughts and I can't help it. Sometimes these thoughts come into my head just spontaneously, and I don't want them there, but I can't help it. Well, again, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. You, you don't have to... Uh, Take those thoughts and, and, and encourage them and, and play them out in your mind. Um, you can resist them. You, you, you can't stop them from popping up, but you can resist them. So Jesus is saying, deal with it radically. If your right hand, verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Do you see how serious he takes sin? If you hate your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. If you commit adultery in your heart, not the physical act necessarily, but just, just in your heart, you're in danger of the fire of hell. He says, pluck your eye out because it's better for you to uh, inherit life without your eyeball than to be cast, your whole body be cast into hell. It's better that or more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's how serious He takes these matters. Furthermore, verse 31, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now He's moved to the subject of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, and I think that's a very accurate uh, translation <laughs> that the New King James uses there, 
uh, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus says, um, you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's true that in the Old Testament law, um, there were certain circumstances where divorce was allowed. And so, uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19. Again, Lord willing, eventually we'll get there. Uh, but He says, from the beginning it was not so. That was not God's original intention that man and wife should divorce. And here, the Pharisees, and, and consequently the, the, the religious culture there, are taking that even further, that allowance for divorce in certain circumstances, and they're applying it to any reason. What Jesus says, verse, verse 31, It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality. He's implying that that's, that's what they were doing. And by the way, that's the question they raise in, uh, in, in Matthew 19. They use similar phrasing there. They ask the question about divorcing for any reason. So this is what they're allowing. And Jesus says, no, I say to you, you do that, you divorce for any reason except sexual immorality, you're causing her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. He gives one exception here, and that is sexual immorality. The Greek word is one word, a word from which we get our word pornography. And it, it is a uh, the, the meaning of it is broad. So I mean, it, it can take into uh, account things like adultery, uh, and so it's translated adultery here because of the context. Uh, I mean, the idea is translated adultery. The word is translated sexual immorality. <clears throat> but Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, so the concept is uh, is is adultery. So, in other words, if, if anyone divorces for any reason other than that their partner has committed adultery, Jesus says, you're, you're causing them to, uh, to commit adultery by going and marrying somebody else. And by the way, he's not endorsing divorce even for that reason. Again, I think Matthew 19 bears that out. It's allowed, but from the beginning it was not so. Uh, what man has joined, or what God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Now he's dealing with oaths, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. It's interesting, isn't it? He's talking about sincerity in speech. And I would say what he's talking about all the way through here as characterizing the children of the kingdom is godly sincerity. Love and godly sincerity. So he says, let your yes be yes. Just, just answer straightforward. Yes and no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. Because you have the power to do nothing. You don't need to be uh, insincerely swearing this or that when you don't know if you'll be alive five seconds from now. And so James tells us later what you should be doing is say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this and that. But not presumptuously swearing, um, you know, based upon, you know, I swear by, the, the, uh, by Jerusalem in, in their case, or I swear by God's throne, or I swear by earth. No, Jesus says, don't do any of that, because you, you that's, that's just presumption. You, you can't, and I love that statement, you can't make one hair white or black. You don't have the power... Um, you say, well, this is before um, they came out with hair dye. But he's not talking about dyeing here. He's talking, he's talking about actually making it change, all right? You can't do that. 
So don't don't swear. And I don't think, by the way, a lot, a lot of uh, people have taken this and, and said that he's banning oaths totally, and so they won't even, for example, take an oath in court to tell the whole truth. And our court system has had, had to make allowance for that. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's really emphasizing the insincerity uh, aspect here. In other words, they're, they're, just, they're just saying things when they don't mean it and, and even swearing, you know, taking oaths that they don't really uh, tend to, intend to fulfill and certainly don't have the power to ensure that they can fulfill. So Jesus is saying, stay away from that. Just, just, just be sincere in your speech. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. This is what characterizes children of the kingdom. Even, by the way, even in the, in the court uh, oath that, uh, like I say, some people won't do because of these verses, um, even in that oath, do you swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? The end of it is, so help you God. In other words, you're, you're saying, uh, it, you know, if you're, if you're meaning what you're saying there, you're saying is, yes, I swear that with God's help. You know, because, again, I can't make one hair white or black. So I'm totally dependent on God. So it's similar to what James is saying. You, you say, if God wills, I'll do this or that. Verse 39, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him. Now, this is radical. He's talking about self-denial. And again, a, a, a preference for fellow man. You're, in other words, you're, you're, you're willing to deny yourself of certain things and rights for the sake of your fellow man. They slap you on one cheek, you turn to them the other cheek. If anyone, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Well, these, these are very practical Things that we we can put to use in our lives, aren't they? I mean, he's he's giving us some specifics here. Somebody wants to borrow something, don't don't turn away from them. Somebody wants to do you wrong and take away uh, your your robe, well, you you give them your outer robe also. They want to see you at court, let them have it. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I mean, this is pretty radical living. But he's saying this characterizes the true believer. Because they're not trying to build a reputation. They're not trying to preserve self. And they have interest in others and esteem others higher than themselves. And he gets more radical. Verse 44, verse 43, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor... And hate your enemy. Now, the first part of that is certainly Scripture. You shall love your neighbor. That's Old Testament command. And it evidently describes in the Pharisees and their righteousness have been teaching. Certainly, you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. Now, uh, a lot of us wouldn't say that, but do we do it? That's the question. Is this the way we think? Of course, we wouldn't say that because we've been trained to say things like, you know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And we love sinners. We love everybody. Everybody, we're just a big, happy family. And then somebody does you wrong and you fool. You empty head. You sorry. No account. Whatever. Jesus says, well, that's what the scribes and Pharisees do. Anybody can do that, but I'm telling you, verse 44, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Brothers and sisters, I've, I've been in, in I, I don't know how many services, not just ours, where we, and I'm just, this is just one example, where we pray for the troops. To the best of my recollection, it has always been the U.S. troops. Where is the prayer for those on the opposing side? Love your enemies, Jesus is saying. You see how radical this is? And He's saying this is characteristic of true believers. Because anybody can love 
their own people. Anybody can love those who love them. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay? Mm. So let me know if you need something. Father, we do pray in the name of Jesus for Dan. And Lord, uh, again, just ask for your intervention. Thank you that all things are in your hands. And we ask right now that you will enable him to breathe. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Yeah. Breathing? Okay. Okay. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And don't miss these last few verses, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is saying this characterizes, this is characteristic of our Father. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors the same, or tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, let me say one thing here in closing. You okay? Or we need, you know, okay. Let me say one thing here in closing. You shall be perfect. Um. Ultimately, the Christian will know sinless perfection because, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness applied to us. We do know that now, positionally. Jesus' righteousness is put to our account. And when we get to glory, sin will no longer be a part of our experience. But I think the way to understand this in verse 48 is perfect in love. In Luke 6, Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, or some people call it the Sermon on the Plain or Plateau, because it may actually be a different occasion. But the wording there is, be merciful. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And that's what Jesus has been talking about all the way through here. Loving your fellow man. Being merciful. Not hating. Not divorcing. Being merciful. Be perfect in love. Mature. Complete in love as your Father in heaven is complete in love or perfect or merciful. This is what characterizes the children of the kingdom. Would you stand? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.